0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American arts, culture, life, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the opportunity to speak with Sakivu Hutchinson, an activist, author, and cultural critic who has written a brave new book, about the impact of God and religious dogma on black communities, especially their impact on families, women, and children. That book is entitled Moral Combat, Black Atheists, Gender Politics, and the Values Wars. It was published by Infidel Books in 2011. This book is engaging for anyone interested in race and cultural politics and progressive race politics in the 21st century. Listen it. Hello, Sakivu.
1: Hi, how are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're speaking with Sakivu Hutchinson, and she is a writer and educator, and also the author of Imagining Transit, Race, Gender, and Transportation Politics in Los Angeles, published by Peter Lang in 2003. Sakivu has also published fiction, essays, and critical theory. She currently resides in California, and we're delighted to have her on the show today. Sakivu, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I'm an L.A. native, and um, I went to school on the East Coast at New York University and really enjoyed the time there, became very impassioned about uh, public space and cultural politics. And I wrote my dissertation on transportation politics in Los Angeles from the perspective of African American migrants coming from the South to the West, you know, grappling with the transition from being heavily steeped in an extremely racially terroristic Jim Crow environment and seeking the quote unquote promised land on the West Coast, only to come here and be severely disabused of that notion because of the depths and the extremity of de facto segregation and racially restrictive covenants. So that was a passion of mine, um, you know, really linking the psychic aspect of the African-American experience and trajectory with the built environment and looking at this sort of palimpsestic history of public transportation, the fact that L.A. had the largest streetcar system in the world up until its dismantling in the 1950s and 1960s, and that's something that's not typically associated with L.A. because L.A. is so Mm car-driven and sprawling and horizontal in its uh, layout. So that was an early emphasis vis-à-vis writing and a scholarship, and over the past several years, I've been engaged in examining the trajectory of African-American humanists and atheists, because this is an area that is severely under-researched, particularly from the feminist perspective. There actually isn't any uh, significant feminist African-American feminist scholarship on African-American secular humanists and atheist traditions. So... I published Moral Combat in 2011 uh, to really crack open the discourse because there's been um, a lot of online organizing amongst African-American non-believers and humanists. Um, There's been a little grassroots real-time organizing, but it's very, very nascent. And women's voices have really been at the forefront of this movement. They've really been propelling... Uh, a lot of the issues around the hyper-misogyny and sexism and homophobia within the black church, the degree to which the black church has not really dealt with these issues of, you know, women's leadership, of the closeting of gay, lesbian, transgendered, and bisexual parishioners, the political disengagement on radical and progressive politics, And these are all questions, issues, and themes that have been raised over the past several decades by African-American, non-believers, skeptics, agnostics, and humanists. Mm
1: -hmm. And I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about how you came to write the book that we're talking about today, Moral Combat, Black Atheists, Gender Politics, and the Values Wars, which you said was published uh, in 2011 and by Infidel Books. But I I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more about your um, uh, personal history. Your father is a somewhat famous figure in uh, California and nationally, isn't
2: he? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, He is a commentator and a a political activist, longtime journalist in uh, public radio. He currently has a show on the Pacifica station, KPFK in Los Angeles. and He's also a commentator for MSNBC and other outlets has done a lot of work on uh, police brutality and excessive force and institutional racism and segregation here in Los Angeles. And so that really um, influenced me in terms of my sort of early thinking and cultural slash political context on humanism. I did grow up in a secular, and I would say humanist uh, background, family background. Both parents were... Humanist, there was no emphasis on organized religion only through extended family, um, so there wasn't a real belief system around embracing the mainstream tenets of Christianity uh, and the black church. And that was something that was very formative for me, because, of course, you know growing up in South Los Angeles, which is a heavily religious community which at that point in time was still predominantly African-American, you know, the black church played a very huge role in every aspect of civic engagement and community organizing, politics, and social welfare. But our home was uh, something of a secular oasis, you know, in the midst of that community. So activism, social justice, gender justice, and humanism were really sort of the main planks of, you know, my sort of formative belief system. And naturally, being a non-believing household, or let me just say a humanist household, because there have been some attempts to revise (laughs) Uh, my parents' perspectives. You know, my father is claiming that he's always been a spiritualist. I I didn't really see that when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. But... um, Anyway, so there's been that element of revision, Mm -hmm. you know, that's crept into, you know, our upbringing. Um, But the point is that there was pushback, obviously, you know, from community members, family members, friends, you know, constant questions about, you know, how come you don't go to church regularly? Do you believe, you know, do you read the Bible? the kinds of questions that you typically get, you know, within a predominantly African-American context.
1: Right, right. And and for that reason, I, I wonder if you could um, take a moment to define some terms for us, just to slow it down for our, our listeners um, a little bit. What is the difference between a humanist and an atheist? And what exactly uh, is your aim in moral combat?
2: Well, a humanist is someone who espouses the primacy of human agency, direction, and authority within the universe. And many humanists are naturalists, meaning that they reject supernatural explanations for the nature of the universe, for the creation of the universe. Um, many humanists subscribe to evolution and Many humanists um, are very impassioned about trying to emphasize the here and now when it comes to human struggle, collectivity, um, engaging with uh, the broader context of, you know, one's community, one's responsibility, and really, really steeping morality within all of those lenses. So, in a nutshell, humanism rejects supernaturalism. You know, there is no creator, there's no intelligent designer, there are no deities, you know, that are micromanaging our actions that, you know, have license, you know, over morality. Basically, humans articulate morality within the context of their lived environments and their circumstances. Atheists, And a lot of humanists, you know, espouse atheism as well. But atheists are distinct insofar as they reject the notion of supernatural beings, and that's really the foundation. So you can be a humanist and an atheist. Um, You don't necessarily have to be a humanist in order to be an atheist. So those are some distinctions in terms of cultural and political ideology, you know, atheism is a little more reductive, you know, insofar as it is just simply a rejection of supernatural deities and beings.
1: Mm-hmm. Who would you say is your primary audience uh, for Moral Combat?
2: Primary audience would be non-believers of African descent and other people of color, that's that's the primary audience. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the broader audience would be those that are interested in learning more about this tradition and about the real struggle and stigma that our culture still associates with atheism, non-belief, and humanism. I mean, certainly we've seen um, the real backlash against critical thinking on organized religion, you know, within a mainstream political context with the ramping up of the religious right and the ramping up of the reactionary conservative flank of the GOP. And so that's something that I tackle very proactively and frontally in Moral Combat in trying to articulate an alternative perspective on public morality as it pertains to the lived experiences, community context, and cultures of peoples of color. Because certainly we can look at, for example, the backlash against reproductive rights and reproductive justice and the way that that plays out very specifically and insidiously in the lives of African-American women who have come under attack, not just from the white religious right, but from the black and Latino religious right in terms of being these dangerous breeders that are running out to get abortions, committing, quote-unquote, black genocide, um, undermining the sustainability of African-American communities by not stepping up to the plate and creating more black babies. And so Moral Combat is is an attempt to focus very laser-like on The practical implications of that kind of propaganda and public policy and the fact that we've seen so much legislation nationwide that is very focused on denying women the right to self-determination when it comes to abortion and birth control and STD and and HIV uh, prevention. All of these things are extremely critical to African-American communities you know, as we look at the fact that we have these skyrocketing rates of mass incarceration and um, lack of access to academic equity, to college, to living wage jobs, to affordable housing. So I take a, a broader lens in moral combat. It's not simply looking at the perspectives of black non-believers vis-a-vis white new atheists and the new atheist movement is more or less a an attempt to mainstream and to really politicize in a very militant way um, the discourse of atheism on a global basis Mm -hmm. and so the book is not just an effort to say we're here, you know, we're proud, we want to be out, you know, as atheists. <laughs> but it's it's really attempting to contextualize atheism and secular humanism in a very concrete, specific way when it comes to how we have been deeply disenfranchised by these conservative, reactionary, Christian, fascist public policies.
1: Mm-hmm. And your book uh, addresses that, but it wouldn't be just the... Um... Uh, extreme right or the ultra conservatives. I think your your book takes up um, neoliberal ideology in in many ways as well. Um, and even there in the opening chapters, a critique of uh, the black church, which I wouldn't characterize as, as ultra conservative. Can you say more about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things I thought was important was really trying to make a connection between a a secular humanist vision and education. Um, When we're looking at issues of the institutionalization of heterosexism within the context of the black church, and the black church obviously is not monolithic. I don't want to trot out the term the black church in a way that is going to be essentialist, Mm -hmm. but just for the sake of discussion, the black church has really been under siege, you know, over the past several years, um, not just from without, but within, from within as well, you know, in terms of there being critics that have stepped up to the plate and really tried to crack open the foundations of sexism, heterosexism, homophobia, and economic impropriety that has taken place within a lot of large black church congregations. So the book is really trying to highlight those voices and acknowledge that, yes, the black church has been a site of agency for African-American women since slavery and into contemporary times. Mm -hmm. But it has been a very reductive and reactionary site as well. So there's some complexity there in terms of, you know, how black women, you know, have come to voice in various means certainly within a civil rights movement context, within the, the context of, of the black church but, you know, have been very oppressed, marginalized, and silenced, you know, when it comes to issues of, say, sexual assault and sexual harassment and the lack of real prominent, sustainable black female leadership. Obviously, we know there have been a lot of scandals that have erupted in major, you know, black church congregations, uh, like Eddie, Eddie Long and his new birth, Missionary congregation mm-hmm. um, being accused of, you know, abusing young African American men. Being accused of being closeted uh, while being, you know, super hyper homophobic. So these are things that I take on, acknowledging that yes, you know, the Black Church has been, in in some instances, quite progressive when it comes to issues of racial justice and, to a lesser extent, economic injustice, but. It has not been an enfranchising body when it comes to this question of feminist uplift and empowerment. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is reflected within the broader context of the African-American-led civil rights movement tradition, because there's never, ever been any full recognition of gender hierarchy, both within the movement and within the specificity of African-American communities, particularly within African-American families. So it's a very multifaceted book. In that regard, um, I also branch out into the role of public education within a K through 12 context, and you know, really examining where African American gender mentalities are coming from mm-hmm. and how these mentalities that really marginalize, objectifies, and dehumanize you know African American women, particularly young African American women. Not only, you know, radiate from a very Judeo-Christian influenced context, but, you know, from the context of the dominant culture, you know, that has commodified black women's bodies vis-a-vis hip-hop and rap traditions um, when it comes to music and videos, but also vis-a-vis marketing traditions and the global, you know, consumption of, you know, black women's bodies as sites of pornography.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. There are two very interesting uh features about your book, uh interesting to me at least. Uh one is how you uh ground your argument in African American uh cultural and literary thought uh using such figures as uh, W.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson, James Baldwin, etc. Um and I'm hoping that you can talk more about that um that literary and cultural history and how it uh uh fuse your your argument. And then the other thing is your your critique of contemporary race and, and racism, um or I should say race relations um among uh African American non believers, uh and white atheists. Um so those two things I think are very um interesting. Would you talk to one or both of those?
2: Yeah, I thought it was really important to bring in the the thinking of early African-American secular humanists, particularly Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston, because there has not been a lot of uh, literary criticism, a lot of scholarship you know, on their work from that particular perspective. Nella Larson was important because she wrote this landmark book called Qu- Quicksand in the late 20s, And Quicksand was really just groundbreaking, trailblazing in many regards because it featured a young African-American woman, biracial, who espoused a secular humanist belief system, who really pushed back against what she perceived to be the pernicious influence of organized religion on the lives of African-Americans. You know, there's a really great passage in the book where, she's sort of observing a church uh, congregation and she starts musing about how in her mind, Chris- Christianity was the white man's religion. Uh, this whole notion of revering and lifting up the white man's God was, you know, deeply problematic because African Americans were so extremely disenfranchised, you know, economically impoverished and it was a form of imprisonment for her, and the book really traces her you know, emergence, you know, as a critical thinker and her disillusionment with being in Harlem, which was literary mecca, you know, during the 1920s into the 40s, uh, cultural mecca, and you know, being in this really spirited period of you know incredible ferment. But at the same time, feeling disillusioned and, you know, feeling isolated and alienated because, you know, she did harbor these beliefs and really, she really couldn't find any sense of community in that context. Mm -hmm. Hurston was formative for me because she wrote this really great essay called Religion in the 1940s. And she talks about her influence growing up in the black church, being extremely moved by black church oratory and really like being betwixt and between because of the degree to which black performance traditions and, you know, black spoken word traditions, black expressivity, you know, were so vital to her development, you know, as a writer, as a thinker, as an artist and an anthropologist, but at the same time really emerging as a free thinker in this context of the black church. And so that essay captures her ambivalence and the way that she pushed back against these traditions and came into her own as a free thinker who, you know, ultimately rejected the belief in in existence of deities and other supernatural figures because she was so strong minded and strong willed and, and such an independent thinker. And she felt that this again was a shackle, you know, on African American creativity and intellectualism. And so many of the extremely influential Harlem Renaissance black thinkers, you know, like Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, as I aforementioned, um, you know, Hurston, um, espoused that kind of viewpoint that there was richness and generativeness in black church traditions on the one hand, but there was this insidious aspect of, you know, simply going along with the program, being devout without questioning, not having a science-based view of the universe and human potential and agency. And that is a recurring theme within much of, African-American secular humanist work. So I wanted to bring that to the fore and, you know, make a link between that tradition and this contemporary striving that we see within extremely nascent, you know, black free thought traditions and communities in this extremely um, insidious political climate where it's not acceptable to be an out black non-believer, despite these decades of you know extremely important thinkers writing about it, um, you know being activists around it, you know the book uh, really talks about the trajectory of A. Philip Randolph, for example, and to a lesser extent, you know James Forman. You know was a one-time head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, mm-hmm. and and how these you know really really influential figures in African-American liberation struggle were free thinkers, and this is not something that is widely known.
1: I'm wondering if you could uh, read a, a few passages from the book for us.
2: Sure. I'll start from the first chapter. Actually, I'll, I'll read the, in the opening a few pages. And this is a chapter called Out of the Closet, Black Atheist in Moral Combat, it begins. Face smorgasbord beckons irresistibly from America's city streets. A cross-country drive tells the story of its market value and lure, its unshakable hold on the schizoid psyche of sex and Jesus obsessed Americana. There is a church for every family, every true believer, every Providence haggler, and every fence sitter. A supernatural crack fix for every creed, taste, and predilection. In the one-mile radius from my house in South Los Angeles to the corner of Florence and Normandy, there are 14 churches. Most of these structures are storefronts, austere and unobtrusive, denominations flowing from Latino Pentecostal to Black Baptist to multiracial Catholic. Woven seamlessly into the workaday facades of other businesses, they offer quiet testimony to the area's shift from predominantly African-American enclave to a mixed Latino and Black community. In the aftermath of the 1992 Rodney King beating verdict, Florence and Normandy gained national notoriety as a bellwether for black rage. There is an auto parts store on the northwest corner where white truck driver Reginald Denny was pulled from his vehicle and beaten by four African-American young men after news of the verdict exploded across the city. On the other side of the street, two gas stations bustle fronted by a strip mall to the northeast, Emblems of the Southern California trinity of cars, faith, and quick, cheap retail. These spaces each tap into different yet similar reservoirs of urban yearning. In the 20 years since the verdict and ensuing civil unrest, these streets have not dramatically changed. Whereas development in predominantly white communities to the West has flourished, the grand photo op promises of federal redevelopment made about South LA by then President George H.W. Bush have gone largely unfulfilled. Time-lapse photography might reveal the dedication and construction of the strip mall, new oil companies taking over the gas stations, the opening of a Mexican panadería, and a Salvadoran pupuseria. Time-lapse photography would also reveal the resilience of the storefront church, an indelible fixture of segregated communities of color. While the storefront church is a big player in my narrative, it has a premier role in the spiritual geography of contemporary black communities. In an era in which African-American communities nationwide are in socioeconomic crisis, the cultural dominance of organized religion merits critical evaluation. In a political climate in which the social justice compass of the black church has been broken by consumerism, institutional sexism, and faith-based witch hunts of gays and lesbians, its moral capital is increasingly dubious. Yet as the late evening audiences at the 14 storefront church services demonstrate, the narcotic of faith still seduces, captivates, and inspires. In this book, I will contextualize the 21st century struggle of African American, feminist, humanist, atheist, examining such themes as moral combat in contemporary American politics, the gender complexities of free thought and atheism, and secular and humanist social justice possibilities in black communities.
1: Very nice. And the book reads as exquisitely throughout as you, as you just demonstrated. Uh, Thank you. I asked you a, a question before I asked you to read, and I just want to return to it in our last few minutes. Sure. And that is, uh, what is the role of race relations um, in your book?
2: It's extremely important. So um, based on the passages I just read, I, I really wanted to ground contemporary Black secular humanist thought in the realities and complexities of black peoples in the 21st century and the fact that we look around us and many of us in the so-called inner city see that there has not been significant change when it comes to redevelopment and when it comes to dismantling de facto segregation Mm -hmm. so in South Los Angeles for example there are many open spaces where there are not um, I would say culturally responsive uh, developments there are not a lot of parks in our community there um, are not a, a lot of you know healthy grocery stores and outlets of that nature there aren't a lot of community centers and recreation spaces for young people and that's more or less been the state for the past several decades while When we go to the west side, which is a predominantly white community, only several miles from here, all of those spaces exist. Now what exists here in the absence of culturally responsive spaces are a lot of storefront churches. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to examine why that was, Mm -hmm. and the invisibility of a lot of these structures, and the fact that they've become organic to the community, you know, while we really haven't addressed the, the lack of economic justice within our local context and within our national context and how that plays into racial disenfranchisement and disparities around, again, mass incarceration and the lack of living wage jobs and the lack of um, transportation alternatives for transit-dependent communities. So moral combat addresses all that within the context of black hyper-religiosity.
0: Zikibu Hutchinson and I have been discussing her recent book, Moral Combat, Black Atheists, Gender Politics, and the Values Wars, published by Infidel Books in 2011. I hope you enjoyed our lively discussion, and I look forward to discussing with Sikavu her new book that's about to come out on race rebels. Please. Stay tuned. And if you haven't gotten that book, go out and get it.